right, Hebrews chapter 10, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 5 through 10 will be our text today. Beginning with verse 5, Wherefore when he saith, or wherefore when he cometh into the world, he saith, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not, but a body hast thou prepared me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin thou hast had no pleasure. Then said I, Lo, I come in the volume of the book, it is written of me to do thy will, O God. Above when he said, Sacrifice and offering and burnt offerings and offering for sin thou wouldest not, neither hadst pleasure therein, which are offered by the law. Then said he, Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. He taketh away the first, that he may establish the second. By the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Let's pray. Father, I pray this morning that you would shape and fashion us according to your will by your word, and by your Spirit. Father, what we know not, I pray that you would teach us. What we are not, I pray that you would make us. That we would be vessels, meet for your use in this world. We praise you, and we thank you in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, this message this morning, I typically uh, don't, give my sermons a title. Usually it's just the heading is the passage of Scripture. Sometimes whatever my study Bible heading gives, I'll use that as, as, the, uh, as the title. Um, I know some pastors are a little bit more uh, witty. They come up with catchy, catchy titles and whatnot. And uh, the truth, though, is this sermon could have several titles. Um, I, I've titled it, The Death of Christ Fulfills God's Will, as you see there in the bulletin. And I've got four points in the bulletin, but really there's two main points, and the the third and fourth point that you see there could be subheadings underneath the the second point of what pleases God. This message could easily be preached on Christmas Day, and as a matter of fact, I I don't remember when it was, within the last eight years, uh, or last six years prior to me coming here, um, I preached this on a Sunday morning uh, as the incarnation of God. It could be called the perfect sacrifice that perfects, meaning the perfect sacrifice that brings us to spiritual maturity. Or it could be the death, as we've called it today, the death of Christ which fulfills the will of God. I'm sure in all the messages that were preached on on Christmas this last year that this was maybe a popular one. It was probably a point of emphasis as... The point of Christmas is to look at the incarnation of Christ. And we cannot look at the incarnation of Christ or talk about the incarnation of Christ without talking about the death and the sacrifice of Christ. The incarnation, as we see and read here in in this passage, is not new content to the book of Hebrews. If you'll turn back to Hebrews chapter 1. It starts off talking about the incarnation of Christ. We look at verse 1. 
God who at sundry times and in divers manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by His Son. Now, how did He speak by Jesus? Well, one way was the life of Christ, the teachings of Christ. The Father spoke through Christ, whom He hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also He made the worlds. Verse 3, who being the brightness of His glory and the express image of His person, <coughs> excuse me, and holding all things by the word of His power, when He had by Himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high, being made so much better than the angels, as He hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. We see that, that Christ, that God has spoke through Christ, the incarnation is no small thing. We see in Philippians chapter 2 that Christ humbled Himself and took upon Himself the form of a servant. The incarnation of Christ is vital to Christian doctrine, to Christian belief, what we believe about the gospel as well. Furthermore, the, the incarnation of Christ is seen in Hebrews chapter 2, down verses 5 through 18. We won't take the time to read that. <clears throat> But the argument that the author is making here concerning the superiority of Christ to the old way is seen in His incarnation. How is it that Christ is superior to that old way? How is it He is superior to that old system? As a matter of fact, in reference to chapter 1, one of the questions that would have come up at that time was if Christ is superior to the angels, then why did He die? Angels don't die. Angels live forever. Angels are eternal. Why is it that Christ is superior to those angels, but yet He died? Well, the point in that is, is that He didn't just die, but He rose again. The Bible talks about Him being the first fruits of the resurrection. What are the first fruits of the resurrection? The first fruits of the resurrection, and the, and the example that we see there, is that we will one day have a body that is glorified and that is perfect. So the incarnation is a necessity to the argument that the author is making in regards to the superiority of Christ to the old system. Now verse 1 through 4 do not contain any new information in, in chapter 10, but is rather a review and a summary for what the author has previously stated. Now we're going to see this again next week. As we look at verses 11 through 18, it's a repeating of what he has said this week and what he has said previously in the book of Hebrews. And he's doing that to make a point. He's doing that to make a point about Christ. And as a matter of fact, as we look a couple of passages in the future, as we address uh, the church, there's a point about the superiority of Christ uh, over His church. The Old Testament law as we saw last week, was merely a shadow, a prototype of the good things to come. And we talked about those good things being present realities for us. Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34, the forgiveness of sin. Every year that they offered that sacrifice, the weight of their sin was on them. They never forgot about their sin. They never felt the weight of forgiveness from, from their sin because that sacrifice had to be continu offered continually. 
a present reality that we have since Christ has come and ascended back to the Father is the indwelling of the Spirit. The indwelling of the Spirit. That is that we have that God puts His Spirit within you. He takes your heart of stone. He gives you a heart of flesh. This is at the prerogative of God. This is as He wills that He does this. But this is what it looks like to be born again. Is that we are a new creation in Christ. We have been made new. And we have the indwelling of the Spirit. So we have forgiveness of sins. We don't have that on our conscience anymore. We have the indwelling of the Spirit that testifies to us that we are of Christ. It leads us into all truth. The question came up in Sunday school. How do we know what is false doctrine? And we, and we need to be aware of that. Well, it's the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God leads us in the truth. It, it causes us, if we submit to His will and it submit to His way, it would teach us God's Word. The third reality that we've looked at is the loathing of sin. That was the, that's the result of God giving you of His Spirit, the loathing of sin. That you would look upon your sin and see that it is, uh, it's grievous to God. It's an attack, if you will, against His law and His nature. The Old Testament law was powerless to perfect, we've seen. It was powerless to accomplish the intended goal. And part of what we'll see this morning at the end is this perfection is spiritual maturity. It's sanctification. God doesn't just save us so that we would sit in church on Sunday morning. He doesn't save us so that we would just be a, a, a recluse or an introvert and not exercise our gift that He has given to us to encourage His church. There's a dilemma that we see in all of Scripture, and it's this. How can God be just and yet save sinners? I mean, have you even pondered that? Why would God, why would God save anyone? If we are sinners, if, if it is in our nature to sin, why is it or how is it that God can be just and redeem those who have broken and violated His law? Those who have cursed Him, if you will. Those who are children of disobedience at one time. Those who were essentially children of the devil. Those who were dead in their trespasses and sin. How is it that God can be just in saving sinners? It's quite simple. It's seen in the person and work of Christ. It's seen in who Jesus is and what He has done. One of the blessings of having COVID this last week, Tiff and I were supposed to be in Southwest Florida this week at that conference we went to last year. Couldn't go. Now, I'd canceled before, but as Providence would have it, I got to watch the sermons online thanks to the technology. And there was, uh, there was a call for the church to see Christ for who He is. Right? That He's more than just a Savior. Folks, He's the Savior. He's not just a way to God. He is the only way to God. He is not just a prophet. He is the prophet. I mean, the Muslims have a view of Jesus. The, the Mormons have a view of Jesus. But only biblical Christianity has the right view of Jesus. Some would say, well, he would be just 
because of His great love. I would concur with that, but we need to be careful about that. Romans 5, 8, But God commended His love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That was a, a display of God's love that He would offer His only Son, and a greater display in Christ that He would willingly offer Himself. But let us not think that that display of love had anything to do with any inherent qualities within us. No, that display of God's love was out of pity and out of mercy for unbelieving people, unregenerate people, spiritually dead people who couldn't do anything for themselves. So this dilemma when, when that we have, if, if God, how can God be just and save sinners? It's because of Christ. It's because of the person and the work of Christ. The acknowledgement of His death alone is insufficient. For salvation, the question you need to answer is, has the Holy Spirit applied the atonement of Christ to you? See, it's one thing to acknowledge that Jesus Christ died. It's one thing to acknowledge that He came. But has that atonement been applied to your life? Has that sacrifice been applied to you? Now, throughout our study in Hebrews, the author, to bolster his argument for the superiority of Christ, has constantly gone back to the Old Testament, in particular the Psalms. He he has shown and has used this to further his argument of the supremacy of Christ. Psalms chapter 2 in particular, Psalms 2 verse 7, Christ is superior to the angels, especially God's Son. He's... He's superior to the angels because He's the only begotten of the Father. That does not mean that He had a point of origin. Jesus Christ has existed for all of eternity. He has only existed in His human form since His birth. Now, He is in His human form at this time, seated at the right hand of the Father. But He is superior to the angels that the argument was made. In chapter 2, verse 2, the Messiah is the anointed one. He is the one to whom they looked and they read about in the Scripture, but yet they were blinded and couldn't see Him. Psalm chapter 2, verses 6 through 8, Jesus is king over all. I asked the question in Sunday school, what gives us hope in this depraved, fallen world? Folks, the reality is that Jesus at this moment is ruling and reigning in this world, he has been given authority over all flesh. At this moment in time, he is reigning. And he does that through his word in the lives of believers. My life and your life ought to be marked by the rule of the rod of iron of the word of God. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 8 and 9 is a picture of Psalms 45, 6, and 7. It extols Jesus as the Davidic Messiah. David was promised that someone would sit on his throne for eternity. That's not a physical manifestation of that kingdom. That is a spiritual realization of that kingdom. Jesus Christ is the King over all. Whether we submit to Him or not, whether we recognize His kingship or not, He is the King Overall, he's the anointed one reigning at the Father's right hand. He possesses 
and eternal kingdom and reigns in righteousness. Psalm 110 has been prevalent as we studied about Melchizedek. Jesus is unlike any high priest that ever came in that old system. So Hebrews chapter 10, the verses that we looked at this morning, is a direct quote from Psalm 40, if you would turn over there. Psalm 40, we'll look at a few verses. Now one of the things that we can see from this as this author has sought to make Christ known and made Him to be superior to that old system And for us today is to see the consistency of Scripture. There will be some standing this morning to preach if they want to call it that, and what they're doing is giving life lessons of how to be a better version of who you are. And folks, the reality for us, for those of the household of faith, it's all about Jesus. Charles Spurgeon Spurgeon said um, to his his, uh, seminary students that, Sir, if there is no Christ in your message, sit down until you can find Him in that message. Right? I mean, and he, he made a comment too um, that uh, whatever the passage may be, you make a beeline for the cross. Right? It's all about Christ. It's not about me. It's about Christ. It's about His superiority as who He is. It's about His, his uh, work of redemption in His sacrifice and in His life. It's about serving Him. The whole point that we gather on Sunday morning is to hear about Him. It's to hear how we ought to conduct our life according to the Scripture, according to Christ. If there is no Christ in our Christianity, then we have no Christianity. We have a made-up version of Christianity. We have a false Christianity. Psalm 40, verse 6 through 8. David wrote this psalm, but it is in many ways a messianic psalm. Imagine as we read this that Jesus is saying this. Jesus Christ Himself is saying this. Sacrifice and offering thou didst not desire. Mine ears hast thou opened. Now that mine ears hast thou opened is, uh, it's actually to dig out the ear. And it, it's, what it's referencing to is the whole body. It's not just focusing in on the ear, but it's a reference to the whole body. So it's in, in conjunction with what we see in Hebrews chapter 10, he's saying what, what, the, what, what the Word says there is that you prepared a body for me um, and, and not the sacrifice of animals. Burn offering and sin offering thou hast not required. Then said I, lo, I come in the volume of the book, it is written of me, I delight to do thy will. Did we hear Jesus say that? Yeah, He said that in John 17. For one, I came to do the will of the Father. I came to do your will. Glorify me. Look at verse 9. I have preached righteousness in the great congregation. Lo, I have not refrained my lips. O Lord, Thou knowest. This is Jesus Christ Himself. This passage is interpreted to point to Christ's obedience and to His atoning death as a replacement for the old system or the old covenant. This is a picture of Jesus saying, I've come to do the will of the Father. This psalm 
shows David's awareness seen in other parts of the Old Testament that God desires faithful, heartfelt obedience more than mere performance of sacrifice, sacrificial rituals. Um, turn over to Hosea chapter 6. And I'll show you one more scripture in the Old Testament. <clears throat> and actually, we'll be turning to 1 Samuel here in a moment as well. Let me show you this. Hosea 6, 6. For I desired mercy and not sacrifice, and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. What is it that God desires in its heartfelt obedience? It's a commitment to His will. This psalm also prophesies the coming of the one who would do the will of the Father. And this leads to our first point. God's displeasure or God's disapproval of religious rituals. I said in Sunday school, and I'll say again, and I'd say this to anybody, I am bothered by the fact that people will say, it's not about religion, it's about a relationship. Now here's the, here's, you say, well, why would that bother you in relation to what you said? Because true religion, let me quote Scripture, true religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this. You visit the fatherless, visit the widows, and you keep yourself unspotted from the world. That's James 1.27. So we could say that a, a, a relationship with God is visible by our religion, by the practice of God's Word. We're told to see to the widows. We're told to see, visit the fatherless. That's love for neighbor. That, that's caring for one another within the assembly of God's church. And then we're to keep ourselves unspotted from the world. That is a love for God so that we would keep His commandments. Now that's religion summed up. So the next time someone makes that statement, say, uh, can I correct you on that? And point them to Scripture. But we do have a type of religion that God despises. A type of religion that God hates. A type of religion that God disapproves of. Look at verse 5 and 6 of Hebrews chapter 10. So here's a question. Why would God disapprove of something that He ordained? He ordained the sacrifice, did He not? The sacrifice that Israel offered? He, he ordained that, did He not? It was a command given. As a matter of fact, a picture of that is also seen in Abraham when He makes His covenant with Abraham. When, when he, he, All these different animals and birds... With the exception of the birds, he divided the other animals. There, there's a picture of sacrifice there. There's a picture of a covenant there. So why would God not be delighted in something that he ordained? Well, the answer is obvious. Wherefore, when he cometh into the world, speaking of Christ, he saith, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not, but a body hast thou prepared for me. Now, we have seen already that these sacrifices that they offered were insufficient, right? They, were, uh, they could not bring uh, forgiveness to the worshipers. Matter of fact, verse 4, For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sin. Th these bulls and goats were never to be salvific. They were never to bring salvation. They were never to bring uh, uh, forgiveness. They were only shadows and prototypes 
of the one who is to come that was to be the perfect sacrifice? Notice verse 6, he says, In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin thou hast had no pleasure. Why is it that God would not have pleasure in what he ordained? Well, one was because of the many offerings. Secondly, the sacrifice, let me say this again, was merely a substitute. It was never going to bring pleasure to God, only the death of His Son. That's why we read in Isaiah 53, 12, um, that it pleased the Lord to bruise Him. Why? Because God's justice was met. His righteousness was fulfilled. Old Testament writers voiced God's displeasure with the sacrificial system. You say, wait, why? God ordained this. Why, why did He find a great displeasure in it? Now, I want you to turn to 1 Samuel chapter 15. I'm going to show you something about this. While you're turning there, the significance of the sacrifice to God ought not to be found in the animal offered. The sacrifice to God ought not be found, the significance ought not to be found in the animal offered. But in the worshiper's heart broken and contrite over sin. Now there are some that would say, Brother Brian, I'm just a little bit tired of hearing about sin. Well, that is the whole of Scripture. is about the sinfulness of man and the righteousness of God. And it needs to be before us. right? We need to confess our sin before God so that we would be a holy people before God. 1 Samuel chapter 15. So if God does not delight in sacrifice, if He does not delight in offering, what then does He delight in? I'm not going to read this whole chapter. What had this was the second time that God basically pronounces judgment upon upon Saul. This is his second rejection. Um, we find the, the scripture. Uh, so what? Had, let me give you a little bit of background first. So what had happened? The Malachites were descendants of Esau. They were part of the descendants of Esau, and they had constantly been enemies of Israel. They were constantly fighting, uh, constantly at them, uh, constantly trying to buffet them and whatnot. But we see in verse 1 through 3 of chapter 15, there is a command given. And that command is to destroy Amalek. Look, look, at, verse, look at those first three verses. Samuel also said unto Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint thee to be king over his people. Now what Samuel's doing is reminding Saul of his role in his life that God ordained. That Samuel, in a way, was a mediator between God and, um, and Saul. Now, prior to the king, to, prior to King Saul, Israel was a theocracy. That is, they were ruled by God. God spoke to Moses, if you remember. He spoke to Joshua. Joshua failed 
um, and not appointing someone to take the lead. And so what happens after Joshua is a series of good and bad judges that judged Israel. And so Israel gets to a point and they want to be like the other nations around them and said, we want to be like them, we want a king. And so God gives them Saul. A lesson in that. Be careful what you demand from God. Be careful looking at, at, at other things and wanting that very thing because the king that God gives them was not a good king. Go back to verse 1. Now therefore, hearken thou unto the voice of the words of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord of hosts. The, the Samuel giving a command directly from God to Saul. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, I remember that which Amalek did to Israel. He says, I remember uh, them buffeting them. How he laid wait for him in the way when he came out from Egypt. Now go and smite Amalek and utterly destroy. In other words, do not leave any living thing alive. You kill everything. And spare them not, all that destroy all that they have, and spare them not. De- wipe out the city, destroy every material thing they have, kill everybody. But slay both man and woman, infant and suckling, ox and sheep, camel and ass. Kill everything, wipe them out. It would be akin to dropping an atomic bomb on a nation and utterly destroying the whole nation, not just one city. And so what does Saul do? Saul gathers all the people. They go to destroy the city and he keeps Agag alive, which was the king. And he keeps some of the animals alive. So the command given is to destroy everything. Now notice verse 9. Now, this, 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 I, let me say this, this idea of, or, or this command to utterly destroy everything, it, it was meant to stop the abominable practices of paganism. Now, some would say, well, that's kind of, that's a little bit extreme, right? Now, fortunately, we don't do that today. We preach the gospel, and that's what stops the abominable practices of paganism, though there are practices of paganism within um. Christianity itself, but that's a message for another time. So the command was given to destroy Amalek, Amalek, but notice that the command was ignored or disobeyed. Look at verse 9. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxygen, or the oxen, oxygen, and of the fatlings and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. But everything that was vile and refuse, they, uh, they, destroyed utterly on the surface that seems admirable i would say on the surface that seems even honorable to destroy that which has defects and to keep that which does not have defects as a sacrifice to god that's a pretty honorable thing is it not but that's not what god told him to do god told him to destroy everything now Down in verse 23, well, in verse 22, prior to that, Samuel goes to Saul and says, hey, what's this bleeding of the sheep? Now, there's another command that Saul ignored of God. 
It was only the high priest that could offer sacrifices. And Samuel, in this text, you can go home and find it if you want, um, or Saul, I'm sorry, not Samuel, goes and offers sacrifices himself when he hears the rejection of God upon him. But notice Samuel's reply in verse 22. And Samuel said, Hath the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to hearken than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry because thou hast rejected the word of the Lord. He hath also rejected thee from being king. You see the point that he's making here? Folks, let me, let me get plain and simple with it. We can offer all the work and things, but if it's not out of heartfelt gratitude, if it's not from a desire to obey God, it's of naught. You could give everything that you have, and if it is not done in worship to God, then it is of no good. But we see a contrast. There's a contrast I want you to see. Turn to Psalm 51. We have the picture of of Saul and how he responds to this and what happened. I mean, the story is after that that he loses the kingdom to David, right? David takes over. God's anointed. And Saul is rejected. His son is rejected from being king. That kingdom is handed to another. But we have another story about another individual. David. What do we know about David? Well, we know probably one of the first things that comes to our mind is the Bible says that David was a man after God's own heart. But we also know that David was guilty of the sin of adultery and murder. Right? He slept. He was, when time when the kings went to war, he sends his people off to war. He's up on the top of his palace, looks down, sees Bathsheba, desires to have her, sends someone, brings her to him. They sleep together. She gets pregnant. He finds out he gets her husband, Uriah, to come from the battlefield, trying to get her, him to sleep with his wife so that he can cover his sin up. Uriah, an honorable man, will not sleep with his own wife while his partners, his, his uh, uh, army buddies, if you will, are in the field fighting. And so David writes Uriah's own death sentence and delivers it by Uriah's own hand. And Uriah is killed in battle. And then David is confronted by Nathan the prophet about, uh, I don't remember the exact story, but there, there was a lamb involved and, and a man desired another man's lamb. And, and, and after the end of the story, David, David gets irate. He is enraged by the injustice there. Nathan, being the prophet of God, says, Thou art the man. You're the one who stole this lamb. And it, Psalm 51 is David's response to being confronted with his sin. I've seen people confronted with their sin and their reaction or their action 
was anger. They did not like the fact that their sin is pointed out to them. I've personally been confronted by God with my own sin and did not like what I saw at first. And and my first response was to be defensive about that. But what does God desire? Look at verse 16 of Psalm 51. Well, first of all, at the beginning of this psalm, David cries out in mercy to God. God, don't give me what I deserve. Right? Be be gracious to me. Be merciful to me. And he talks about washing him thoroughly, cleansing him from his sin. But look what he says in verse 16 or 17. For thou desirest not sacrifice or else I would give it. If it was a lamb or something that David could have just offered for his sin, he said, I'd have done it. But God, that's not what you desire. Or else I would give it. Thou delightest not in burnt offering. God, you don't delight. You don't take pleasure in what you have ordained. And then he goes to explain, what are the sacrifices of God? They're a broken spirit. A broken and a contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. What is brokenness? What is contriteness? Brokenhearted over sin. Deeply affected with grief and sorrow for having offended God. You see, our sin is an offense to a holy God. It is an offense to the one that we say redeemed us. And yet many of us go about our life as though our sin is not an offense to God. Many of us go about our life as though our sin is not really that big of a deal. And we come to church and we put on airs before people all the while we are filthy with sin. God does not admire your faithfulness. God does not admire your religiosity. God does not admire or approve of you putting on airs of your hypocrisy, dare I say. What He wants is a people who is broken over their sin. He wants a people who are deeply affected by the reality that we offend God every day. This is the proper response when confronted with sin. The realization that God does not take pleasure in these surface things ought to awaken us to the reality that we offend Him daily. He will not be pleased with our false version of Christianity, if you will. So then what does God take pleasure in? Well, He takes pleasure in people who are remorseful over their sin. He he takes pleasure in people who submit to His will. He takes pleasure in, first of all, He took pleasure in Christ. Notice our our text back in Hebrews chapter 10. Verse 7. Then said I, lo, I come in the volume of the book, as it is written of me, to do thy will, O God. 
Now, what was the will of God for Jesus Christ? In John chapter 17, he says that you have given authority You've given authority to me over all flesh that I might give eternal life to as many as you have given to me. The will of God was for Jesus to come and die for those to whom the Father had given to Him. In short, but we see someone in Christ who did not just submit to the will of God at the end of his life, but he submitted to the will of God in all of his life. I had someone ask me one time, what what did I think it meant when Jesus was in the garden praying and He said, Father, if possible, let this cup pass from me, but not my will, Thine be done. I said, I think what it means that Jesus was saying is that if there's any other way that salvation can be had for these people You have given me, then so be it. But if not, not my will, Yours be done. Folks, that's a model for us to pray that we would say, God, not my will, but thine be done. And you know what? When we pray that way, you know what it helps us do? Accept whatever God's will is for our life. That's the reality that we ought to see in our life. Now he says in our text that the first has been done away with by the second, meaning the first covenant, that which God made with Israel, he said, if you obey me, then dot, 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 we know that. This second one is dependent upon the faithfulness of God's Word. There's there's no question that the sacrifice of Christ is sufficient for the salvation of man because it was offered once. That speaks to its sufficiency. It speaks also to its effectiveness. His sacrifice, though, not only saves us, but it sanctifies us or qualifies us to come into the presence of God. I made a statement a few weeks ago, and I think I offended some people. And it was this, that if you have not been born again, then the church is not for you, meaning church membership is not for you. Now, I want people to come and hear the gospel. I want to be faithful to proclaim the gospel wherever I may go. But just coming to church does not qualify you to gain favor and to worship God. You must come through Christ. Folks, that's not the words of Brian. That is the words of Almighty God in His authoritative Word. We have no right to come to God of our own. We must come through the blood of Christ. Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. That is an exclusive message. Right? That if we don't come through Christ, then you're trying to come through the back door and you will not be allowed entrance. There is a very real sense in this moment which we have already been sanctified. Now, look down at verse 10. Verse 9 says that the first was taken away, that that he may establish the second, and he established the, the second covenant with the coming of Christ, with the sacrifice of Christ, by the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. There's a very real sense in that in which we are already sanctified. 
And sanctified simply means to make holy, to make pure, to be morally clean. But there's also a very real sense in which we are yet to be sanctified. This is a present reality of a life that every Christian must live daily for the one who has been born again. It is God's will that you sanctify yourself. If you want to turn there, you can. If not, I'll read it for you. First Thessalonians, I'm sorry, chapter 4. I brought this passage up in Sunday school. Verse 3. Now the point I'm getting to is this, is that Jesus Christ's death alone, though it saves us, He didn't die just so we could say I'm saved. He saved us and He sanctified us that we would live a distinctly different life in this wicked world that we live in. And it's evident, I mean, we could look at tons of Scripture regarding this, but when I think of sanctification, this is something that comes up quite often. Look at verse 1. Furthermore, then, we beseech you, brethren, and exhort you by the Lord Jesus Christ, that as you have received of us how you ought to walk and to please God, so you would abound more and more. Now, there's this idea that we see here that there are specific commands that are given to know how we must conduct our life, that's our manner of walk, and what is pleasing to God. For you know, verse 2, what commandments we gave you by the Lord Jesus. Notice verse 3, for this is the will of God. Now, there are two, you could sum God's will up into two things. One, there is the the decorative or the secretive will of God, which is things that we cannot know until it happens, right? But the second one that applies more so to us for today is the, the, uh, the descriptive will of God, that which God reveals to us. That's what we can know. And that's what we're talking about here. In verse 3, he said, For this is the will of God. This is the revelation of God. This is that which you should obey. That you should abstain, or this is the will of God, even your sanctification, your setting apart, your being made holy, that you should abstain from fornication. Now, he deals with a sexually immoral sin, but he goes on to say, and that the realization is that we are to confess our sin. The will of God is the duty found in Revelation, otherwise known as the revealed will of God. That's why it's ludicrous when someone says it's not about religion, it's about a relationship. Because the religion is the practice, it is the outworking of the evidence of that relationship. Let me explain it this way. Let's suppose the first time I'd have come down here and y'all said... Brother Brown, are you married? Yep, I'm married. I pulled out a picture and I show you a picture of my wife or who I say was my wife. But let's say after a period of time, I never brought my wife here. I never introduced you to my wife. I never brought my wife here for you to see and for you to get to know. Would some of you begin to question if I was at least married or if I was delusional or maybe I was just outright lying? The realization for people that say they are Christian 
and do not offer evidence that they are in a right relationship with God is akin to me saying I'm, not, I'm married and just showing you a picture of my wife and there's no evidence of me being married. You say, well, you're being judgmental. I'm, folks, this is a scripture. If we can't offer evidence that we are what we say we are, then we need to be questioning one another. And we'll see that even in more detail here in a couple of weeks when we look at the next, uh, not the next passage, but the passage after that in Hebrews. The will of God is the duty found in Revelation. Jesus said, if you love me, you will do what? Come on, somebody help me. Keep my commandments. Well, wait a minute. That sounds about a little bit more than relationship, does it not? That speaks to something that we are working out, that we are doing. Now, that's not to get salvation. That is as evidence that we are disciples of Christ. This is things to sanctify as those things that the, the Lord finds pleasing in His sight. And we'll not look at Deuteronomy 29, but if you want to write Deuteronomy 29, 29, you can look at that when you get home. Now, let me close by saying this. God delights in obedience to His will. And that could be summed up in sanctifying yourself. That is that we are praying and asking God to show us of our sin and that by His, if we have His Spirit, that Spirit, and John 16, 8, when the Spirit has come, He will prove the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. Folks, if you don't see your sin, or do you even have the Spirit of God? If we walk around with unconfessed sin, can we say that we have the Spirit of God? So how does one sanctify themselves? How do we know that we are of God? One, we need to get in the book. Put your nose in the Bible. And I don't mean just read and read and read. I mean, you search God's Word for the duty that you must do as someone looking for a hidden treasure. Get in the book. If the Bible is God's revelation to His people of what we must do, of what He expects of us, we need to be men and women of the book. It's one thing to say, I believe the Bible. It's another thing to say, I believe and I submit to the Bible. Right? There's a lot of people that say they believe the Bible, but when you start confronting them with passages that may be obscure to them, now, all of a sudden, the Bible becomes something different. One, get in the book. Make time to get in the book. Make sacrifices to get in the book. Secondly, pray. James said, you have not because you ask not. And that doesn't mean a new car, a new home, whatever the case may be. In that context, he's talking one about wisdom. Folks, you want to draw close to God, draw close... You want God to draw close to you, draw close to Him, and we do that through prayer. Prayer shows us our dependence upon God. Prayer shows us that we submit to His sovereignty and His authority because we have not power to do these things. Get in the book. Pray. Third, obey. There comes a point in time where, as Nike's slogan says, just do it. Right? I mean... Seth understands this as a coach. You can go through the fundamentals as much as you want, but there comes a point in time where you just have to do it. 
Folks, we're so caught up in application in the church today. I can't make this apply personally to you in every individual instance. That's the Holy Spirit's job, as John MacArthur said. But there comes a point in time when you must say that if I'm a Christian, if God has worked effectually in me by the gospel, then I must submit to His word and just do it. Obey the command. And then fourthly, this all comes together in this. Confess your sin. I don't mean just God forgive me of my sin. I mean God forgive me of a specific sin. God's faithful to show us these things. I'm constantly amazed that when I get put in a position where I get desperate and I begin to say with desperation, God, show me my sin, He does. He does. He shows us our sin. Why? So He can come down on us in a hand of judgment? No. That we would conform to the image of Christ. That's the whole purpose in all this. Is conformity to the image of Christ. Not conformity to Baptist doctrine or Baptist belief or whatever that is. Conformity to the Christ. If our doctrine opposes Christ, we need to correct our doctrine. If our actions oppose Christ, we need to correct our action. And if God's Spirit is in you, then you will see the need for that. Folks, Christ's sacrifice is sufficient Not just to save us, but to sanctify us, to make us a people that is holy. And look, in this day and age that we're living in, with the rampant wickedness around us, are we going to look like the world? Are we going to stand out like a sore thumb in opposition to the world because of the work that God has done in our life? And by the way, you might want to get ready for persecution if that's the way we're going to live. Let's pray.